This is Think Retail, a podcast where top designers, strategists, thought leaders, and business people discuss what's coming next. We live in a time when change is happening so quickly, it feels like keeping up is almost impossible. For retail brands, keeping up is simply the cost of doing business. But with so many new tools emerging every year, new social platforms, new niche trends, staying ahead of the competition has become so daunting that many feel they're falling behind. A field of study that previously was seen as something of an academic niche is now emerging as a key tool that can help brands not only stay relevant, but if leveraged to its full extent, can even help them leapfrog ahead and become leaders. That field is strategic foresight and future studies. Today, we're talking to foresight strategist Robert Bolton to understand exactly what strategic foresight is and how it can help brands. Robert, thanks so much for being with us today. Can you start us off by telling us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So I've been uh, practicing strategic foresight for uh, almost 10 years now. I am the uh, founder and the principal at uh, the Foresight Studio from later. If there's people who are unfamiliar with what, what a foresight studio is or the idea of that, it's, uh, it's what it sounds like. It's a dedicated space to study what's changing uh, early on when it's changing uh, so that we can speculate about what might be in the future. But prior to starting from later, I worked at Idea Couture and uh, a global IT company, Cognizant, and uh, worked with all kinds of uh, organizations and continue to many in consumer packaged goods in retail, but also in the technology and banking sectors and uh, really across the board, working with governments as well. In the world of foresight, I've also yeah, worked with the government of Canada and designed a board game that was uh, intended to teach um, public servants how to better think about the policy implications of change that's emerging and how to think better through uh, the future implications of uh, what different uh, policy decisions might be. And, and recently taught foresight at City Lab Berlin, which was is a uh, satellite campus at Norwich University, um, which is the oldest private military school in the United States. So that's my sort of foresight background. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of people have heard the term strategic foresight, but they're not entirely clear on what that means. Can you just give us a simple definition and maybe a bit of context for how the field is growing? Sure. So well, let's start with this. Foresight is thinking about the future, doing so strategically and systematically uh, in a disciplined way with a certain set of tools. So in some sense, that's just a human thing to do. On the other hand, humans aren't always very good at it. So having a kind of uh, intentional, deliberate process to do it can be, can be useful. It began during the Cold War, at least as, as we know it now, um, as kind of scenario planning and ways to think through the different, uh, you know, very scary possibilities that were emerging at the time and uh, was over time started to be adopted uh, within a lot of organizations and businesses, governments, and so on. My definition for foresight is a, a set of tools for dealing with uncertainty and capitalizing on change, at least as far as uh, I think the audience of this podcast would be thinking about it. It's about sensing what's going on around you, what's happening, what's changing right now. It's about anticipating different possibilities. And it's about devising strategies that prepare us for uh, a range of possible futures. One of the kind of useful cliches within foresight is uh, it's not about predicting. 
it's about preparing. So uh, it's very much about, you know, the understanding the scope of what could happen, um, the entirety of what's possible, uh, and devising resilient strategies uh, in response. And, and it's also very much about the exercise of, of going through that, immersing yourself in the unknown and kind of conditioning yourself for change. And, uh, well, you can see why right now it's a critical moment in time and history. And, yeah, uh, and, and I think those who had practiced foresight will be at somewhat of an advantage. Absolutely. So, I mean, obviously we have, I prepared these questions before uh, COVID-19 took over the entire world's focus, but Mm -hmm. even that aside, would you say that strategic foresight and future studies, even before this, were becoming more of interest to industry? Yeah, it seems to be. I mean, when my career started at at Idea Couture, where I was at the time, there was a three-person foresight team and there was not a lot of work coming in that was explicitly about foresight. Uh, certain tools from foresight were kind of in our in our toolkit and part of our process for doing innovation work, but not a lot of people were coming looking for foresight. And I think within that time, partly because the uh, the sense that there's that time is moving faster, basically mm-hmm. that that uh, that progress is happening faster, that technological change in particular. Uh, is happening fast and probably more recently that there's been a acceleration of sort of social and political change as well in the past sort of five so, five or so years has caused a, a lot of people caught a lot of people off guard and, and caused a lot of people to have uh, more of an interest in in thinking long term I think like one of the the great benefits that I've found is this sort of state of preparedness that you get out of just practicing it so rather than panicking in, in certain situations, by, by taking a longer view, you start to probably be a little more rational in the types of decisions you're making. Small bumps in the road don't affect you as much. I, I even find that, uh, you know, and one, one of the reasons I do this work is that I find organizations tend to behave morally better uh, when thinking in the long term in the sense that the... Uh, the, the sort of bottom line goals, the, the, the business imperatives tend to align much better uh, with the sort of social and environmental ones when you're taking a much longer view, partially just because you, you, need, you, know, you need people to be alive to have a thriving business and you need those people to, uh, to like your business as well. Absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, when we're talking about um, retail brands and CPG brands specifically. Can you give us a high level overview of how a brand might benefit from using a strategic foresight process? Sure. One benefit is agility. You understand how your business environment is changing. Uh, you start to be aware of the different kind of signposts and indicators that allow you to change course. I think the obvious one and, and sort of the reason why people like myself were being hired a lot, especially in the earlier days, was just for innovation. And, and still, a lot of the work we do is about identifying new growth opportunities for different sorts of organizations. So, um, you know, this is across, you know, any type of, of organization. I think uh, more along the lines of uh, how it's good for organizations you know, everyone talks about transformation, yet everyone has very entrenched thinking and is stuck in their ways. So foresight is really a weapon against entrenched thinking. The sign of a successful foresight project is that you've gone in with a certain set of assumptions. You've come out 
with a new set of assumptions. You've sort of admitted you're wrong in some instances. You have new considerations. Uh, you're open to new opportunities. So it's it's certainly necessary for for transformation. We'll probably get into this a little bit more, but uh, because it's very relevant to the to the COVID nineteen situation. But uh, just resilience, as I was alluding to before, um, being able to carry on, um, being able to to uh, survive, but even to, to thrive in uh, when you have something that is uh, either, you know, fully unexpected, partially unexpected, or has secondary and tertiary consequences that are unexpected, foresight can certainly prepare you for that. Um, and then, you know, what I mentioned before, just uh, confidence and clarity and the ability to communicate. The, the practice is a lot about developing shared materials for having a conversation about a future. So, you know, if a a retail organization uh, approaches us and is looking for a company-wide perspective on the future. Uh, our objective is to kind of look at what are, what are the information inputs uh, at the various levels, the sort of big forces of change, the and the and the really sort of emergent, marginal, potentially impactful, what we call signals of change, uh, weak signals of change, and and kind of mapping those out and. Um, and also talking about what, you know, the preferred future is, talking to organizations about what they hope will happen and also the opposite of that. But it gives a shared language uh, and a kind of shared material so that these kind of strategic conversations can actually happen. And, and that can't happen if, if nobody fully understands kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about the future. So it's, uh, it can be very important for creating that language so that there's just a level of of clarity, of confidence, and and in the end, kind of calm. And how, I mean, most people, when they're doing their business planning, they mm -hmm. are doing this in a traditional linear way where they're thinking, you know, my goal for Q4 of this year is to achieve these goals. And so here are the steps I need to take to get to that. Right. How does this process differ? It differs quite significantly because you looking way beyond that. I mean, the projects I've done range from being sort of at the, at the minimum about three years out, uh, at the maximum, you know, as far as a hundred years out for certain types of organizations and industries more often, it's probably in the 10, 10 years or so or five years, five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, but as, with that, I would note that, what, that doesn't mean that you don't, you're not doing anything or that it's not actionable. So when we're thinking, you know, when we do a project and we're looking 10 years out, five years out, three years out, there's also this process of, of what we call backcasting, which is just kind of road mapping in reverse of understanding where we want to go, what the different potential uncertainties might be along the way, how, how, how things might go, what kind of contingencies need to be in place, but then what can we do right now? So a lot of the work that I do uh, results in people and capital being allocated uh, towards different types of projects immediately in, in acquisitions that happen really quickly. Mm -hmm. It's simply just that the, the, the real ROI or the, the sort of moment for, the, for that company that was acquired, for example, is several years out. So it's, it's, it's about, you know, we talk about it as being the future, but it's not this far off thing. It's all based on, what's changing right now, which is, would be like observing, you know, facts out there in the world. And then it's the, it's all about taking action right now uh, in order to prepare yourself for different possible futures or to 
like as I mentioned, capitalize on change. So for example, it would be, uh, we need to create this R&D fund or innovation project. And so it, it, it's, it's a very useful tool for the big picture strategy that then um, works its way down to influence the, the sort of, okay, what are we doing for Q4? It can be useful for sort of um, shorter term marketing initiatives. Uh, mainly, I would say as a way of, of like gathering ideas and because you're doing so much work, looking to the margins, looking to the sort of weirder things that are happening in the world, uh, looking to the cultural and behavioral changes that are occurring. Sometimes uh, from a marketing perspective, you can act on those very quickly. And so there's sort of, I, I would call them foresight adjacent sort of uh, sort of practices that you see that it is more along the lines of, of watching trends. And these are really common in retail and, and retail does them pretty well. Uh, it's not the area where we're most focused on uh, at From Later. That's mainly because uh, there are so many other organizations that are uh, excellent at sort of organizing the very near term trends that are sort of helpful for like advertising companies or digital marketing companies that need to do kind of cool stuff for brands immediately, you know? Right. Can we talk about some of those examples you mentioned? Yeah, sure. So like I mentioned, I've kind of, I've been in this field for about nine years. So when I look back, there's a lot of stuff we were talking about back then for various clients and that are very commonplace today that you can sort of start to see. So uh, one of the terms that we used to talk about all the time was uh, frictionless fulfillment. And we were kind of getting at what now is quite commonplace uh, in terms of apps like Ritual, the way that delivery has uh, become so ubiquitous in, in the past several years. The, um, you know, Starbucks has these kind of pickup stations in, in, you know, in the path here in Toronto, for example, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, you're ordering in advance, you just show up, grab your coffee. So these were all um, sort of micro scenarios that we were talking about with our clients uh, many years ago, just the way that digital systems would be uh, implemented in different spaces. Just this kind of idea that there'd be a a very diverse ecosystem, commerce ecosystem that meets consumers where they are and gives them what what they want when they want it. And and then I think on the other hand of that, there was the counter trend that was more about augmented experience. So, you know, this and has come to be called the, like the experience economy, which we, you know, back at the very start of my, we were talking about this stuff a lot and, and pushing a lot of our clients to, to think that way. And this was kind of, you know, then years passed and things like retailers like Italy that are so experience focused started to emerge as well as the sort of flagship, what I, on our team, we jokingly call them uh, FIMSEs, F-I-M-S-E, which is fully immersive multisensorial experiences jokingly, because I guess all of life is a fully immersive multisensorial experience, but you know what I mean, the kind of deliberate um, canvas thing that has become so big in the past, like three years or so, was something that we were really kind of pushing different, uh, different clients towards uh, way back then. Um, And as a a specific one that I can talk about, because it's kind of a little bit more out there in the world this is not exactly uh retail but it is uh consumer packaged goods uh kind of example but uh the work that we did uh with tyson foods several years ago had really 
is a good example, I think, of how of sort of what I talked about of how an organization can take action in the short term towards something that might be more meaningful in the long term. It's also a, a great example of how foresight allows sort of difficult conversations that are just almost prohibited when you're when you're in a model of quarterly capitalism and you have these sort of here's my q4 targets and and even when there's just sort of this entrenched thinking so i free these things up so around 2016 through 2018 uh tyson foods which was a a, a meat company has always been a company that was in poultry and beef and so on started investing in uh, protein alternatives plant-based meat and even becoming curious about like synthetic biology approaches, what's called cellular agriculture, mm-hmm. uh, different ways. So that was something that we had put in their on their radar as something that would be you know critical just based on a whole number of factors. And if you look at sort of what it is, you can understand how that's not something that a company like that would be necessarily open to, and how it represents a kind of moving of the needle. And you know, it's not like they've changed completely. It's a small moving of the needle, but one that was based on sort of the synthesis of a number of like big picture and smaller picture factors. So if you start at the very top, there's like population growth, right? Uh, world population growing from 7.3 to like, it's projected to be, you know, nine, 9.7 in 2050, uh, 11.2 in 2100, along with like the concerns around uh, environmental degradation that are associated with uh, the production of meat through land use, through water consumption, through uh, emissions and, and waste. The, there was a, you know, a, a growing demand for protein um, in developing countries, right? China, places like that in particular. So there's more need for meat and yet it's less sustainable to produce. But then there was these other uh, sort of, those are the, I, I guess the really big picture top-down sort of trends. And then there was these bottom-up ones, uh, which was like what we were calling flexitarian behavior. So people who are choosing to be plant-based or vegetarian one one or more days a week. And that that was a growing trend at the time uh, and continues to be the fact that there were uh, emerging startups that represented non-traditional competition in the form of these kind of Silicon Valley type startups that were prototyping like lab grown meats and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you could kind of see it at like the, the tech level, the consumer level, and then like the, the sort of big, bigger picture demand level, as well as the, the really, really high level population growth and environmental kind of level. So it's, it's when you, when you kind of look at it and talk through it, it's, it seems this is a very obvious move and, and the process of, of, of foresight kind of takes something that might at first sound ridiculous and then it doesn't sound so ridiculous once you work through it and once you recognize that like we're working towards steering like this big ship just you know a few degrees in another direction through some investments but that few degrees can take us to a totally different destination 10 years 20 years and so on and and i think that will you know uh make uh, Tyson a much more sort of long-term sustainable organization. Absolutely. It does seem obvious when you look at it from a big perspective, but when, you know, you're in a company that has for however many years been a meat producer, Mm -hmm. as much as everybody likes the word innovation, 
Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that can get in the way. And you've been talking a lot about that, you know, people coming in with a set of biases and especially the bigger the company, the bigger the hurdle it is to overcome. Mm -hmm. How can companies put aside these biases or how can they think about long-term planning and become more innovative knowing that often you're dealing with people who may not be there to see the results of the things they're putting in action. They may have moved on to another company how do you how does your process help people get through that hurdle i mean it requires some sort of buy-in early on and just kind of i I suppose some kind of responsibility and understanding of uh, the importance of thinking on these kinds of of time scales and you know that you you may not see the return on investment or the fruits of this change so early on but you never you never know as well. And like, it tends to be also some, you know, sometimes things happen and things change faster than you realize. Like, Mm -hmm. again, it's not sort of about predicting, it's about preparing. And so I think going through the process tends to get people to buy in to the value of it. Um, Seeing that it's like very based in what's happening now. I think also one of the things that, you know, I would urge people to think about is just kind of, thinking more existentially about your career and about what you're doing. I I understand that people have jobs and people have specific objectives within those jobs and have to work in certain ways. I don't at all mean to to kind of shame anyone, but I do think it's worthwhile thinking about how your family will remember you and how you spent your life and what, you know, how your ancestors will think about that, you know, actually thinking about, not just your job at work, but your job on this planet. And Mm -hmm. um, I I think that that's another sort of helpful way to be thinking, to get, to get you kind of thinking in the long term. like, how are you leaving the world in a state that's better than uh, you came to it with? I I, I recognize that this kind of talk might sound out of place in the boardroom, but uh, I I think for everyone in the boardroom is a human being. So well, and less and less because people are, um, you know, consumers are demanding that they understand what legacies companies are planning to leave behind. It's more important to consumers now than it maybe was 20 years ago. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. There's, there tends to be, there tends to end up being shorter term benefits. It's the long term way of thinking that kind of changes like the conversation a little bit. So yeah, you're very right. A lot of these things are urgent right now. So uh, I wanted to ask you about market research. Mm -hmm. If we were looking at emerging consumer behavior, how would foresight research differ from what people are traditionally doing as far as market research goes in the industry right now? Sure. So I would say it's very different from anything quantitative in terms of how things are being projected or looking at things like surveys. And foresight will look at statistical trends and we'll look at market research. That's one of many inputs into what we're doing. Like it's really the work of synthesis. So in the, in the example I gave of Tyson foods, many of those were kind of were quantitative kind of signals, mm-hmm. but those would be inputs. Some were not um, some things like the emerging technologies and startups and the work that was happening in cellular agriculture was not quantitative at all. It was sort of like single instances, a few of them that we're kind of right. looking at. So one difference is, is, is that it, it requires a lot of critical thinking and it requires what uh, one of my colleagues from uh, over the course of my career, J.R. LaFontaine, has been calling 
uh, epistemic hygiene or epistemological hygiene. So like, how are we keeping our beliefs clean, I guess, um, how we're being taken care of, of what it is that we believe and, and doing that from the various um, information inputs. So it's like really about a really wide uh, diversity of sources. So within foresight, we might look at a signal of change that's uh, on its own you would never change a company strategy based on that, right? It's about how you think about in totality or the aggregate of these different pieces. It's about kind of looking how, how these things fit together. So there's a lot of pattern recognition. It's a very creative sort of mode of research, I believe. Quite a bit of intuition involved until you build a very strategic case. Like, and that's sort of the, towards the end of the projects. It's like a, a lot, there's always in the middle of it, this sort of, uh, sense of like I am lost we, we, we always get to this point in the middle of it and then we always seem to come out um, with very like actionable takes for for, for like where our clients should be playing so it, it, there's some trust in the process there that's involved but it's definitely a there's a, a little bit more freedom to look into the the weirder ideas and talk about them and think about what they may mean I mentioned the term weak signal of change so mm-hmm. weak signal of change is something that a signal, something that you notice in the world that you sense is very critical. You sense that this is important. You're not necessarily sure why yet. And, and so in Foresight, we're unpacking that, making sense of those things uh, in terms of how they relate to each other. What are the potential cross impacts of uh, these different signals? What are the, the possible uh, secondary, tertiary implications of them? And, and what are the cross impacts of those? That's kind of the, the way we think about it. And, are there any emerging signals of change that you see happening right now that you think are especially relevant for retail brands? Certainly. Um, well, there's a, a lot of different sort of scales to think about that. Uh, we, we've basically entered a new reality. So we, we may Absolutely. As, if we can use this as an opportunity to transition into to COVID, um, to the COVID-19 crisis. Firstly, I would say, I mean, this is a, a moment where obviously a lot of retailers have been severely impacted by uh, social distancing and it's, yeah, having, having just a really devastating effect on, on the industry. I'm sure you you've, are probably more well-steeped in what kind of what's, what's going on right now than I am. I w- would point out the, the inevitability of either a super bug or viral pandemic, something that we've been talking to all of our clients about for years. In fact, in the, the board game that I mentioned earlier that we created, there was uh, one of five disruption cards that sort of upsets the whole the whole board and what's happening in the in the kind of world that you're collectively building in this game. And, and one of them was uh, a, a superbug. It's it's something that was very well understood that it was happening. However the secondary and tertiary effects were not well understood. Nobody kind of knew that it would be as weird as it has been or that it would be something, you know, they didn't know the nature of the, of the, of the virus that's, that's come. So there's a lot that would be unknown, but again, foresight, not about predicting, but helping us to prepare. So being aware of disruption of, uh, uh, of business as usual, I think this will be a big wake up call. It's an opportunity right now for, all types of organizations, but certainly for, for retailers to think about what contingency plans could have been in place uh, that might have allowed them to to survive, to even thrive in this moment. So I'm pretty sure we'll 
you're learning a lot of lessons from the, the strategies around how to reopen right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of signals, like there's a lot of opportunity to look to places like China right now to see how s- certain cities are reopening, are having, are having retailers reopen and, and stepping up to have adequate levels of hygiene. You know, there's signals like the, the sort of gift card plan um, that's come up for various uh, smaller restaurants and retailers that are using get, kind of getting people's support through gift cards. Things like that could have been in place to deploy uh, more instantly when there's these kinds of disruptions. And so that's the type of thing that, that you could be thinking about. Obviously, um, from, a, from a kind of well, like employee well-being angle, you, you, you know, the other thing that we've talked about a ton is just the precarity of the workforce in a, in a gig work economy and a part-time worker economy. Um, so having resources in place, now whether that's on the businesses or the government or both is, is up to debate, but, but we've sort of known about the precarity of the workforce and we've known that there could be a disruption like this. It seems as though, you know, not much was in place. Everybody was scrambling and, and fortunately, you know, things are getting done in that regard, but it's uh, leaving people in, in really difficult, difficult uh, positions. And then uh, I think right now also that we're seeing is the way that certain types of uh, packaged goods uh, companies like FMCGs, the, the perfume companies and the alcohol companies are transitioning, uh, very all kinds of, of CPG companies transitioning to, to focus their supply uh, on, on essentials, and uh, which also allows them to reopen. Another thing that I think is worth looking at is just the way to create networks at, at all levels, at community levels, at larger scale levels. Um, yeah, just net, networks of businesses to be aware of each other's kind of supply, to be sharing knowledge, and uh, also to, yeah, to be able to, to find ways of, of, of reopening potentially faster if possible or uh, to survive. You know, I think any organization that didn't have a really strong e-commerce strategy uh, will be rethinking that because I think, you know, certain types of organizations that that really had that all the way figured out, whoever had the sort of more mature e-commerce strategies is probably at a bit of an advantage right now. Absolutely. So at the very beginning, you mentioned that you, you looked at strategic foresight and future studies as having a toolbox. So I want to mm-hmm. ask you about, um, you know, if you were to offer three different specific tools for retail brands, what would those three tools be? Yeah, I mean, I think as far as methods go, weak signal scanning is the first one. So just really scanning, you know, beyond the day to day, beyond the quarterly things that affect you um, to the peripheries where you want to be and having dedicated time to kind of interpret that weak signal scanning. It's really about allocating the right time. I'd recommend if if an organization wants to uh, uh, implement a kind of weak signal scanning process um, and and institutionalize it with something that's uh, core to their organization, it's useful to look externally. We do that kind of work with people as a starting point to kind of help set that up. And it's something that, you know, you should also dedicate internal resources so that, uh, so that you don't have to come back to us so that you can do it yeah. on your own. So we can kind of simultaneously do that research and do some, uh, some training and, uh, 
and there is a bit of understanding your own kind of organizational culture and what may or may not need to change for that to happen. It can be easier, more difficult for different types of organizations for sure. Um, but weak signal scanning, the, the outcome of that is to have this, what I call like a shared understanding of the future so that you can have a conversation so that it can be an input into annual strategic planning processes that maybe depending on what the company is, might only look out three years or five years um, so that you can start thinking 15 years so that sort of whatever it is at the end of that, you know, that you're saying you're, you're doing in five years um, is, is, is significant for beyond that period. So it is something that's relevant to, to really where you're going in the longer term and understanding that. And so that where you're going in the longer term is something that you can begin taking action on uh, immediately and start exploring and, and to reassess if it turns out to be the wrong direction. So that's, that's one, it kind of follows to look at um, scenario planning. And, you know, one part of that is just, this comes directly out. It's sort of next step in the process of uh, weak signal scanning. So that can be done in multiple ways uh, and is worth doing in multiple ways. There's the sort of look at understanding the threats and the potential crises that could occur. There's also identifying the growth opportunities that you might otherwise not see, but both of those are products of the sort of sense-making and synthesis of, of what you find in your process of weak signal scanning. And uh, well, I'll give you four. Uh, okay. One, one, one that is related to the scenario planning is the idea of wind tunneling. So that's a term that Foresight borrows from sort of aerospace engineering. Before you go and put a plane in the sky and, and risk lives, you uh, uh, simulate uh, the conditions of flight in a wind tunnel. And uh, so we think about that with strategies. So rather than putting the, the aircraft in a wind tunnel, we're putting the strategy into various scenarios to see whether it holds up, how it needs to be adjusted. So that's part of scenario planning, but that process uh, obviously makes your, your strategies more, uh, more resilient. And the last one was one I, I, I had mentioned before is just backcasting. It's just one way of making sure that this isn't just uh, imagining the future and, and dreaming about the future. You know, uh, backcasting forces you to look at, okay, this is where we would like to be. Um, let's talk about how we would actually get there. What are the milestones along the way and how will we reach them? So if you're looking really 15 years out and, and working your way back, and I think people who try this stuff will be, uh, amazed at the different sorts of ideas it brings up. One thing that I always find happens is um, somebody has a sort of idea that sounds almost like magic when they're looking 20 years out or 15 years out or, or even 10 years out, but then you kind of work your way back. How do we do this? And, and you ask the question, what's the one year out version of this? What's the two year out? And it turns out like through this process, they've identified something they saw as a future need, but it's actually also a need in the shorter term and it's complete white space in the shorter term. So that's one of the uh, sort of happy innovations or coincidences, ideas that comes out of the foresight process. You start to see that there's actually a, a lot, a great opportunity in, in the nearer term and that you can take advantage of right away that you just wouldn't have thought of in the sort of typical day-to-day -day operation of, of a business. Thank you so much for sharing all of these thoughts with us. I'm sure it'll be very interesting for people, especially right now. Um, I think this will get people thinking a lot more about the future and how they need to be prepared for it. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Being prepared, or even better, being able to use coming changes to your advantage are key ways to not just surviving, but thriving. 
Strategic foresight is a way of approaching planning with a more expansive view that allows companies to shift their thinking and challenge biases and assumptions. Thanks very much to Rob for helping our listeners understand strategic foresight and why it matters now more than ever. For more information about Think Retail, you can reach us at info at sld.com. For more episodes, visit us online at sld.com slash podcast. Next time, members of the SLD team will discuss our recent future readiness report. We hope you'll join us.